Hey everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this show, we talk about big issues that pop up as we're reading through the Bible. Because at Bible Discovery, we read through the Bible every year. Uh, so we also uh, aim to discuss some of your questions. I love it when you guys go into the comment section and not only comment, but also send us questions. You can do it there in the comment section. It's probably the best place if you have questions for scripture that's coming up or general Christian and culture questions, uh, probably the best place would be the comment section, but you could also email hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com and just put the weekend show in the subject line. That would be awesome. But uh, my name is Corey, if this is your first time here, and I'm here with Matlock. Hey. How you doing? Good. You? Good. Doing pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how they are. Comment section. There's lots <laughs> for that comment section. We love hanging out in there. We do it personally. Yeah. We don't have people do it for us. It's just us. Uh, so, Matlock, what were what was our assigned reading this week? Our assigned reading was uh, Acts 27 to Romans 14. So, the very end of Acts and a lot of Romans. And so, that's pretty much what we have. We have a question pertaining to Acts, and most of our questions pertain to Romans. Like, what does it mean that God hated uh, Esau but loved Jacob? Uh, questions pertaining to, are we worshiping the correct God? And one Bible contradiction that we're going to get into, which is our first question. But besides that, we do have a big question. Okay. It's not a traditional one. It is a viewer question uh, pertaining to Romans 13. Okay. So it is our quasi-big question. And that is, I have a question and was hoping for some clarity. In regards to obeying the government, do we do that unless it goes against Scripture? Or do we obey in love even in persecution? Is battling for Canada or in the nation in prayer a good thing? Is protesting quietly? Thanks so much. I desire to walk in obedience to God and his word. It's from Deborah. So that's our big question. So stay tuned for that. We'll answer that at the very end. Sounds good to me. Perfect. All right, Corey, <laughs> let's let's start things off, okay? Let's do it, yeah. We're gonna start off with a question pertaining to Acts. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the supposed Bible contradiction or whatever it is. It is uh, from Tarek Roberts. In Mark 7, 18 to 19, all foods were made clean. However, in Acts 10, verses 9 to 16, Peter didn't want to eat unclean food. Was he unaware of the removal of kosher law? Also, can it be said that anything considered an abomination in the Old Testament has since been changed? What do you say? Right. Okay. So let's uh, hop over to Mark chapter 7. So it, in Acts 10, we, we won't read it, but um, in Acts 10, this is referring to Peter's vision where God gives him this vision three times of a sheet descending from heaven with all sorts of unclean animals in this sheet. And God says, kill and eat. And Peter is horrified because he is a law, a mosaic law abiding Jew. And so he has never eaten anything like that because it's considered unclean according to the mosaic law. And of course, the, the, the out, outworking of this, what ends up happening because of this is uh, Peter accepts Gentiles into Christianity, into the faith, into following following Jesus and does not require Gentiles to follow the Mosaic law, especially when it comes to things like what they eat. Um, so, so yeah, so this was an opening mm -hmm. of Christianity and salvation to the Gentiles that had been prophesied in the Old Testament and even Jesus had spoken about it. Okay, so that's Acts chapter 10. And then when we hop over to Mark 7 and it's verse 18 and 19, let's find that for you here. Okay, so I'm going to back it up to Mark 7 and I'm going to start in verse 14. 
So this is Jesus. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. So that's a bracket there. After, after the end of Jesus's talk, it says, thus, Mark says, thus, he declared all foods foods clean. Okay, so this is not a contradiction. We have to remember that the Gospel of Mark is written after the after Acts chapter 10. So after the events of Acts chapter 10, I should say. So uh, the Gospel of Mark is looking back at the teaching ministry of Jesus. And so there's notations in there that explain and process Jesus's teaching. Uh, because, I mean, we see this a ton uh, in um, Luke and in John, where uh, the, the gospel authors add in cultural notations. They add in, you know, uh, things like the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but now they understand that whole thing. So Mark is retrospectively looking back at Jesus's teaching and going, hold on a second. It makes sense that we no longer as Christians, we're no longer required to follow these dietary laws. Jesus even spoke about that. Uh, we just didn't apply it fully to our lifestyle while Jesus was here. So we know that Jesus as the Messiah, just because Jesus taught this in Mark chapter seven, we know that he did not immediately start following a Gentile diet. That didn't happen. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He came to fulfill the law. So while he was alive on earth, he lived the Jewish law. He lived the Mosaic law. He followed the dietary rule rules uh, and, and the moral laws and all of that, and then died and was resurrected. So Jesus fulfilled the law and then opened up. He, 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 he was the arbiter of a new covenant, a covenant of his blood. He became the final sacrifice, but the sacrifice had to be righteous according to the Mosaic law, right? So he was a righteous sacrifice and then he opened up that door to the Gentiles on different terms. Uh, the same term of faith, which we're gonna get into because this pertains to Romans as we go in, sure. but it looked different culturally where the Gentiles didn't first have to become Jewish and follow the Mosaic law. So I hope that I'm explaining that correctly where, or, or in a way that's easy to understand, I should say. Um, because yes, Jesus and his disciples, while Jesus was here on earth, absolutely followed the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law because Jesus needed to be the perfect sacrifice and really represent Israel in a perfect way uh, until his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, and then he becomes this new covenant for the people, a covenant in his blood and opens up the way of salvation to the Gentiles um, on the terms of faith, excluding the Mosaic law in practice, like in those dietary laws, which we see in Acts chapter right. 10. And the reason again, why it's said, why it's recorded in Mark is because Mark is looking, looking retrospectively back at Jesus's teachings. Yeah, and I think that nails his exact point is, was he unaware of the removal of cultural laws? Like, well, no, because Mark's writing after the fact. He's, yes. And it's a parentheses, right? He's writing in quotes. So it's not like Jesus said, and now I remove all kosher laws. 
See what mm-hmm. I'm saying? He's not like saying that. No, um, Jesus Jesus followed them. Right. So the point here is that the narrator, the author, is writing that in. And that's the key distinction there. So if it's something that's said explicitly or something the, the author is making, then we know that there's different time restraints. Things are just a little bit different there. Right. So I think that's important. <clears throat> also, too, I think this to add to this, there's also something else to be said uh, pr- pertaining to the second part of his question is, also, can it be said that anything considered an abomination in the Old Testament has since been changed? No, I wouldn't go that far. I definitely wouldn't go that far because um, it, is it still an abomination to murder? Absolutely it is. Uh, uh, because that has to do with the morality of God. Um, and and we see that being upheld in the New Testament. We know the fruitless works of darkness. We know what that is. There are lists in the New Testament that go over what a sin is. So sin is still sin, but Jesus is saying that that essentially the, the dietary restrictions, the kosher laws of the Old Testament didn't have to do with sin. They had to do with uh, following a certain pattern to, to distinguish Israel out of the different cultures. But now other cultures have been let into salvation. So we don't have to adopt some of those cultural laws. However, morality is a different story. So you can't just go, well, just because the kosher laws were wiped out, that means everything's wiped out and it's a free-for-all. There is still objective truth when it comes to what is right and what is wrong. We see that exemplified in the New Testament. So you can't take it that far. You can't say, well, just because uh, Peter saw these as an abomination, therefore, anytime we see the word abomination in the Old Testament, we can just nix it, right? That would be very convenient, especially in our culture today, but uh, not so. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. There's no reason to go that far. Yes. That's pretty good. Okay, now look, I want to turn the tables on you. Oh, we're out of racks. We're heading to, out of racks. Out of, of acts. <laughs> We're heading to Romans. Yes. Yeah. When you mix Romans and Acts, you get racks. Racks. Yeah. Mm, not not a real Bible. Not a real book of Bible. The book of the Bible. I'm doing it no, now I know. Too. I'm sorry. I blew it. I'm stumbling over my words. That's okay. So Matlog. Yes. This is this pertains to Romans one and two chapters okay. one and two. Okay. Uh, and this question is from Paul, and he says, "Will people be condemned for not believing in Jesus, though they've never heard his name? How are they supposed to attribute cre- creation to the correct God?" Okay, good questions. Mm-hmm. So let's go to Romans 1 and Romans 2. Um, we'll start off by answering the second question, which is how are they supposed to attribute creation to the correct God? Right. So I think that's a little bit more fundamental. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21 and verses 24 to 25, we see that Paul spe- specifically makes the argument that God is perceptible and intuitive in creation, in conscience, and in reason. And um, if, especially for those who are sincerely seeking. So it's, it, he, he is blatantly there in those three facets, in creation, in conscience, and in reason. So I'm going to read this to you. Uh, verse 18, we'll start there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So if you hear that, they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, So in other words, they knew God, they knew about God, they suppressed the truth. 
They did not honor him as, as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, if we move to uh, verse 24 to 25, therefore God gave them up in, their, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So in other words, I think that's pretty obvious. I think it's very clear what Paul's saying there. People intuitively and perceptively can see God. You can see it in the hydrological cycle. Let's say God is orderly. So you see that like um, uh, water raises up, right? Goes into the clouds and it comes down through rain. And that cycle continues. That cycle continues and it nourishes all the world. There's order there that is like that that seems that there's a law within nature that allows this to happen and laws are not a physical thing there's something that we discover that we perceive through observation through reason right um even just even the con you know you talk about modern science uh how people have um the fine-tuning of the universe and how the world is so perfectly uh created for life that it's almost impossible for it not to be created by someone who is uh, who is uh, who's God? Who is a conscious being, a supreme conscious being? So there's all these evidences throughout time and history of things that point to God being above creation itself, not in creation, but above it. So in other words, a non-material, omnipresent, omni uh, omniscient being, right? Who's all, who's all good? So these these properties of God are intuitive in our conscience. And through reasoning, through examining creation and through examining the cre the, uh, the creature. And so that's the thing right there. So in terms of attributing to the correct God, we'd have to suppress the truth not to, in other words. So everyone intuitively knows who the correct God is. And we have to go against uh, what we're designed to be like, right? Uh, designed to be in communion with God. We have to go against that in order to suppress the truth and not designate the right God. So that's the first step of your question, is that um, God is, uh, we intuitively attribute the correct God just by God's design alone, and then we suppress it. I think, personally, I think it's because we have a, we're naturally hardened against forgiveness. We don't want to be forgiven. We want to be our own gods. We, want, we have pride and all these different things. So because we're hardened against his forgiveness, we're hardened against repentance, therefore we don't, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Hope that makes sense. Anyways, now to your first question. Will people be condemned for not believing in Jesus, though they've never hear his name? Okay, so there's this is a big question. People, this is, you know, people have often thought about this throughout history. Like, what does this mean? Uh, one of the, the main things to keep in mind is, is that we don't know for sure how God's we know God is good, God is just, and God will judge people accordingly and righteously on the day of judgment. We can rest assured in that. We don't have to be like, well, God's unjust. We don't even need to bring those questions up. We know he's good and just. That's the whole point. If he's not good and just, we don't need to worship God. It doesn't make it, nothing matters. Anyways, God is good and just. He's, good, he's always going to make the right, perfect call come judgment day. Now, um, it comes down to people whether they have heard God or whether they rejected God. Several times in the scripture, it's very clear, like John 12, verses 48, Luke 10, 16, Mark 7, 6 to 9, and Amos 2, verse 4, rejecting God is a way bigger deal. Right? As when the Jews rejected the Messiah, that's a way bigger deal. So when the Jews rejected Messiah, Jesus, what does he say to this generation? Oh, you'll be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? 
So it's like rejecting Christ, rejecting uh, God is way worse than not hearing about God or suppressing the truth. It's worse. Now, suppressing the truth can lead, obviously, to terrible things. Having said that, not every single person suppresses the truth, and I think there's evidence for this in Romans 2, uh, verses 12 to 16. So let me read this for you. Let's go to Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. Okay. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So right there, the key line here, what I want to point out is uh, right here. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, we heard earlier that Paul uses that they're without excuse. They, they perceptively know God. Here he's saying that here they might be excused. And so there's a possibility here of people who don't hear the gospel, who don't completely suppress the truth, but listen to their conscience. Okay? And God's going to judge them accordingly. Am I going to say in like a flat-out doctrinal, dogmatic way, God's going to save everybody universally? It's like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Having said that, I reserve the possibility that God uh, may save people who have never heard the gospel before based on how they've responded to natural law and how God's designed them. That is God's domain. But we're called to give, provide people the guarantee. The guarantee is Jesus Christ, right? The way, the life, the truth. So you, you provide people the Messiah and to believe in him and to follow him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that is the mission. If people reject that, that is way worse of a situation. As Peter says, they're worse off than they were before. That's what uh, Peter says that. So my point is in saying all this is that I reserve the possibility that God may save people. There's a guaranteed way and there's a possible way. Clearly one is better than the other. So follow the guaranteed way. And I don't think, again, the idea that God might possibly save people who have never heard the gospel, okay, undermines our need to push the gospel. Because again, there's the guaranteed way and there's the possible way. And people who have the guaranteed way, it's the reason why in, in, in okay, in Romans 3, he goes, what advantage does the Jew have, right? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Because he's saying having the law, that's the oracles of God that Paul calls it, uh, having the scriptures define what evil is, is good for the edification and purification and sanctification of you. So that's that's really valuable there. But I think even more than that, you know what Paul yes. what Paul is referencing there is that is that the 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 historic witness that the Jewish people have yeah. to the reality of God and to the nature of God. Yes. You know, in that chapter specifically, he's talking about like they they have this heritage. They get they they have seen and witnessed in their history throughout the generations the working of God and what He's like. Yeah. So that there is huge benefit to that, and and so us as Christians as well who have been grafted in to the children of God, we now also have this heritage. We have this history. Yes. And so tagging onto what you said, we are commissioned by Christ. Yes to go out and spread the gospel and to make disciples of all nations because it is good and it is beneficial. Like Christ, the truth of Christ sets us free from 
from bondage to sin. Right. And so that freedom is in Christ alone. So that freedom can be experienced in the here and now uh, in in part and then more fully in the age to come. Right. right? So not only are we commissioned to spread the gospel, but it, it also brings freedom and it brings truth and it brings heritage and it brings clarity. So all of these are really good things. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you said that. So yeah. there's... And you think about, like I said, we have a gospel mission to present, the, you know, it's part of the gospel mission. Our mission is to present the gospel yes. right? to all people, to evangelize, to evangelize it, to establish churches, to establish make the disciples. kingdom of God, to make disciples of all nations, right? Yes. So to go out there, make the kingdom of God. Yes. Boom. Okay. So with that, then, when people hear about the gospel, right, mm-hmm. you're naturally presenting them with a light and darkness situation. Yes. You're splitting the sheeps from the goats. You're saying, hey, become, follow the goodness, the truth, the way, and the life, right? For eternal life. Or reject it all, right? And follow lies and the walk the, in darkness. The, walk in darkness yep. and the ways of this world. That is what we're called to do. So mm-hmm. that required that that's why Jesus says, You think I've come to make peace? I've come to draw a sword, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that you're naturally going to split people. People are going to reject the truth. People are going to accept the truth. It's what's going to happen. And the gray areas there is for the people who haven't seen it yet. But rest assured, God is good and just. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. So when you tell people about the light, right, you want them to come to the light for the guarantee. The people who haven't heard it yet, God knows what's up. God knows how he's going to address them accordingly, right? So, yeah, and 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 we can we can trust and we can rest in the in that concept that he is working with people as his creation. He's he's already working with them, even if they haven't heard the gospel yet. Yes. So that's something and, you know. Um, Paul talks about that as well yeah. in Acts. I, I I one anecdote that always comes to mind is, is Socrates' moral character throughout history. Now we don't really have a great historical basis for Socrates. You know, we have Xenophon, Plato, and some other guys who have documented his life. But you see that in his conscience, for instance, um, at a time where pedophilia was rampant, okay, he it went against his conscience to enact it, even though he found it attractive. Mm-hmm. It was common, it was prevalent, it was everywhere. He's like, I find this attractive, but it goes against my conscience, and I'd rather um, uh, help the edification of the soul than do that. And so you have to think about this. Okay, Socrates has not heard the gospel, okay? He knows intuitively that that's, that that's wrong, yeah. and he won't do it, despite having passions for it. So I'm only saying these things because we know that these, these moral laws exist, yeah. and that if there's moral laws, there must be a moral law giver. And so we get, everything can be deduced down to the correct God. And um, anyways, Socrates was later trialed for atheism, by the way, for bringing in false gods, for his views were very particular. But that's another story, and it's, I've written about it. And it's really interesting, his, his case. But besides that, Corey, let's move on. Uh, okay? Yeah, I think we're ready to move I on. I think we're good. Okay, so Romans 9. Okay, yep. Ooh, contentious <clears throat> one. Okay. Why did God say he hated Esau and loved Jacob? Then I hear everyone say that God loves everyone. Mm-hmm. How do I know if God loves me or hates me? Yeah. Also, please pr- pray for my four young adult children's salvation. If you do not believe there is a God... They have had a hard life. I have been praying for years and I fear Jesus will come back or something will happen to them and they don't know Jesus. Thank you very much. Leanne Taylor. All right. Thank you, Leanne, for this question. Okay. I know you were like, ooh, contentious. I really don't think this one should be contentious. It's contentious 
in the greater scheme of Protestantism. Sure. I, just, I, I really don't think not, it should be because when you put when you plop it into its scriptural context, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I know it touches on other issues, but let's get to it. Yes, okay. Yeah, do it. Romans chapter nine. We have to keep Romans chapter nine in the greater context of this letter to the church in Rome. We know, depending on when you date the writing of the letter of Romans, it's about ten years after the Emperor Claudius actually expelled all Jews from Rome over fighting over Christ, uh, over the Christ, which I believe is recorded by Suetonius. I'm going to have to go back and really quickly check it, the Roman historian Suetonius. But And that's uh, referenced, I believe, in Acts chapter 18, when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth, because they were Jews, uh, Christian Jews, who got kicked out of Rome. So they were Messianic Jews who got kicked out of Rome in that whole thing, because there was infighting in, um, or at least the people saw it as infighting, because Christianity was still seen as a lesser sect within Judaism. So there was a lot of fighting going on, and the emperor was just like, get out of Rome. So... There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of contention between uh, Jew and Gentile, between Christian Jew and, and um, non-Christian Jew going on in Rome. And we see this reflected in the letter of Romans. When you, when you take a, like more of a bird's eye view over the letter of Romans, you can see that Paul is very specifically dealing with Jewish versus Gentile Christianity because there's this, there's this conflict that's going on between lifestyles and, and beliefs and, and that. So Romans chapter nine very, very much, uh, plays into that. So the overarching point of Romans chapter nine is essentially that God is sovereign over mankind and God chooses and God rejects. Now, put in context, in scriptural context, because um, Paul pulls up the example of Pharaoh and he says, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, Paul is just using a summary of what happened. He's not going in and trying to exegete and pull out all of the details of Pharaoh. He's assuming that his Jewish audience already knows this story very well. We may not as Gentile Christians 2,000 years later. So if we jump back over to Exodus, we see that the first few times that that's recorded, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it actually says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So... The, the, the idea in scripture in the Old Testament and I believe in the New Testament as well is that God is powerful enough to be sovereign and also allow for human free will. And this is a mystery. I think this is a good thing to be a mystery, but I personally believe God is powerful enough to be sovereign and also allow human free will. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here, but in a world, in a culture where Jewish Christians are looking down on Gentile Christians, Paul is reminding the Jewish Christians that they are not saved because of their affiliation, their biological affiliation with Abraham. They are saved because of faith in Christ, because God has chosen to open up the way of salvation to people based off of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I really do think that that, um, that that plays out here. Now, 
specifically when it comes to Romans 9, verse 13, the hatred of Esau. Uh, let's, let's backtrack and read up until verse 13. Uh, 13. We're going to start in 6 and we're going to read to 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and this is a quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Paul's making a distinction here. Did Abraham have more children than Isaac? Yes, he had Ishmael right? So there's already there, there's a choice in the line of Abraham. So just because you descend from Abraham doesn't mean that God has chosen to have the Messiah come through you, right? He had chosen Isaac specifically. So already Paul's saying, see, look, it's not based on your heritage. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son, end quote. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Paul is quoting Malachi there. That is a quote of the Old Testament prophet Malachi. So I hope you're seeing right away that Paul's point, he's making a double point, that just because the Jews in his day are descendants of Abraham and descendants of Isaac and descendants of Jacob doesn't necessarily mean that they are children of this new covenant, okay? And and he he draws that out in the rest of the chapter. But let's just for the sake of argument, just for the sake of understanding what he's saying a little bit more, let's jump over to what he's quoting from, which is Malachi. Malachi chapter one. So in the days of Malachi, uh, the, the Judeans were experiencing a horrible time physically and politically. They were just destitute. And apparently they were questioning whether God had, had whether God prioritized them or loved them or what. Malachi chapter uh, chapter 1 verse 2 I have loved you says the Lord but you say how have you loved us is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I have hated I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God is contrasting here the, 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 his covenant people with people who are related to them but not only were they not originally a part of the, the, the covenant, but they had rejected God in wickedness over and over and over. If you just do like a word search on Bible Gateway and you type in Edom, 
you up will pop up prophecies that talk about the the wickedness of Edom and how they rejected God and rejected Israel and rejected Judah. So there's judgment coming on here. Now, what I want to bring out in this discussion is that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, hatred and love doesn't mean like the emotive hatred and love that we associate it with today. Like, ugh, I hate the taste of I don't know, salmon. I'm not a salmon fan. I hate the taste of that. That's gross. That repulses me. That's not what this is talking about. This is referencing priority. Uh, choosing something versus rejecting something. Okay? So Jacob, I have chosen. Esau, I have rejected. And God has his reasons here. I think the reasons are obvious in the scripture. But he has his reasons here that aren't really necessary to this equation. The idea that Paul is bringing out in Romans 13 is that God gets to decide who has salvation and it's not based on your ancestry. So God has opened up the door of salvation to the Gentiles, regardless of whether the Jewish Christians in Rome like it or not. The Gentiles are not lesser Christians because they are not biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Just as God can choose between even the biological children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so he can choose between humanity, okay? Uh, another way, we, uh, there's a, we see this, I'm not pulling the distinction of love and hatred as priority. I'm not pulling that out of a hat. That's a demonstrable pattern. I mean, like if you go to Luke, I think it's 14. I wrote I wrote a note for myself, I think. Maybe I did not. We'll just find out. Um, are you tracking with what I'm saying so far? Yeah, Is it all good. making sense no, I while I look good. for this? Just to add some extra clarity just to round it all. Please, because um, I'm going to find what I'm talking about right, here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, you do that. The very beginning of, of verse 9, he's dealing with all of Israel. Yes. Not all of Israel belongs to Israel, right? Then he's talking about, oh, how the uh, uh, Gentiles are going to come in. Because later on in the verse, he talks about, he quotes Amos, or Hosea, excuse me. Yep. This is uh, at, at, at verse 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people will call my, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The point here is that he's talking Mm -hmm. amongst, on a national level. Yeah. From the very beginning, he's talking about as a group collectively, it's not about bloodline, right? And then also he keeps going with that, that other people, Gentiles are going to be grafted in. Um. So that's really important here in this discussion. Now, I think it is understandable in our context to atomize it down to the individual themselves because Paul talks about, well, Jacob, he refers to Jacob and Esau. Yep. But these are also referred to, individual names are also referred to as nations. Definitely. When when Malachi, he's quoting Malachi and Malachi is using Jacob and Esau as nations. He's not using them as individuals. He's using them as nations. Exactly. So when when, um, our friend Leon Taylor asks, how do I know if God loves me or hates me? Right? It's excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. No. 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 That's good. Yeah. It's, I was gonna get there. After. Oh, you're gonna get there. Okay. You can well, still. You no, can go it's ahead. Okay. Go I was ahead. gonna say it's it's not it's not this is not referring to individuals. Individuals. But anyway, so you continue. I'm just throwing that in there. No, I think that is a really important distinction because a lot of times people apply this directly to personal salvation. Right. But this is not talking about personal salvation. This is talking about God's sovereign choice in in how He 
how he orders salvation. So he's talking about Jewish versus Gentile Christian issues demonstratively here in Romans chapter 13. Okay, it was Luke 14 that I wanted to draw our attention to um, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. Luke 14 verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus demonstratively did not hate his own mother or his family, right? He made provision for his mother while he was on the cross. Um, But what this is talking about is priority structure. Who are you going to choose to prioritize in your life? And Jesus says, when you follow me, you're choosing to prioritize me. You're choosing to lay down your life, to pick up your cross and follow me, even if that means a shameful execution uh, like a like a cross. And we see it again in um, Luke chapter 16 in the parable of the dis- dishonest manager. We get to the, the point of the parable in Luke 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what are you prioritizing here? What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve godliness or are you trying to achieve worldly wealth? And so Jesus is kind of opposing me. So again, it's about that priority structure. So So Romans 13 is about uh, how God chooses and rejects what he prioritizes. And it turns out that it's not the biological children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God is prioritizing. He has opened the door of salvation to Gentiles, okay? Now, when it comes to your question, Leanne, of how do I know if God loves me or hates me? I want to bring your attention to John 3. And of course, John 3.16 is extremely famous, but I think in our discussion of what love and what hatred means in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it gives us a more well-rounded and biblically-based view of what John 3.16 means. So John, the Gospel of John, is the latest gospel to be written. So it is the most pastoral uh, that we see uh, because uh, John is writing in a time where the church is being established. And so this is what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you get that? For God so loved Israel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, if we stop there, we might be like, universalism, everyone's going to be saved in the whole world. Amazing. But when you keep reading, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So how do I know if God loves me or hates me? The amazing news is that we live after the time of Jesus's death and resurrection. So God has loved the world. He has prioritized now all of us. He has opened the doors of salvation and said, all may come. Now, we can still choose to reject that. We can accept or we can, ex or we can reject Jesus. We can accept or reject this gift of eternal life. So God does love you. He has prioritized, and this is not an emotional love, although I do think that emotions, like our, the creator of our emotions is God. So I think he does emotionally love you. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not what this is talking about. This is the priority structure. God has prioritized the world by sending his son as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that is strong enough to save anyone in the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. So you are, you are prioritized uh, for salvation. You are chosen for salvation. Will you choose? It's, let me just read First John verse 4. Uh, sorry, first, first John chapter four, verse seven. Okay, mm -hmm. and I'll just continue on. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Mm -hmm. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So see there what's happening there? Love each other as, so, as so God so loved the world. God loves you first. You love each other. We love each other as the church. And through that, God abides in us, and his love is, is perfecting us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us, given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Mm -hmm. All right. I think, that, yeah, again, it's reiterating what John 3.16 says. Mm -hmm. God loves us, and then through us, we're able to love others. So it's not even just a matter of, oh, God loves me, and, and then kumbaya, I don't have to do anything, right? Yeah. It's like, well, naturally, that pours out. Mm -hmm. Just by virtue of God's love, you're going to pour and give that love to others, to the church, to your family, right? People are going to see that love expressing through you. So I think that's, if for anyone, if you're anxious, know that God loves you and that that love will be working out through you. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and God loves your children as well. I mean, the end of this question is Leanne concerned for her children. And what? Leanne, I just want to encourage you, keep praying for your children. Keep showing love, God's love, to your children. Tell them the truth. Uh, ask God to give you uh, ways to minister to your children. Um, and, and continue to ask God to put people in your children's life that will be godly witnesses to them and examples for them. 
you know, God is faithful and persistence in prayer is such an important thing. Um, so I would just encourage you, do not give up and don't let people's, you know, theology discourage you, but just know that your heavenly father created you for a purpose. He created your children for a purpose and just keep um, praying towards that and living towards that. And, so, and I want to add to this too, just one last piece, Acts, since we're dealing with Acts. Sure. Acts 2, uh, let's start here with verse 38. And this is after people, Peter was engaging the crowd. And um, they're, they're, they were cut to their heart. And the, the, the apostles and everyone else goes, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Mm -hmm. That's for you and your children. So hold on to that and keep praying because it is, uh, it is part of what we're called to do. Especially as parents. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. Okay, Matlock, we're right. going to move on to Romans eleven twenty six. Yes. Okay? Let's because do there's it. a viewer question specifically from Justin from Romans eleven twenty six, which right. says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Um, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so. Okay. Justin says, Based on Romans 11, verse 26, will all Israelites be saved regardless or if they are Messianic Jews? And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. All right, so to be clear for people listening, a Messianic Jew is a person who's Jewish who believes in Jesus Christ. So what he's asking is, can you not believe in Jesus Christ and reject Jesus and then be saved? Because Paul's clearly saying, or he. He, he think he thinks it might he might be saying that uh, all Jews will be saved. So let's talk about this. So first, let's go to you've already read this, but I'm going to read it again. Romans nine verses four to eight. Okay, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as the though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall have offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of the promise, what is that? Promise of faith. We're going to get into this right now. So let's go to Romans 11, verses uh, 13 to 16. Okay? All right. And this is teaching it that it's by faith and not by blood. Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. To make them jealous and thus save some of them. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, okay? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Okay, so it's getting into there. Yeah. Now, in verses 19 to 21 and 23, 
And so the root is not unfaithful Jews, it's faithful Jews. Let's go down to chapter 19. I'm sorry, chap, I always do that. Verse 19. <laughs> then you will say, branches are broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So already here, here, Paul's talking about some being spared, some not. Some are being cast out. Some are cut off already. Based on their faith. Based on their faith. Exactly. And that that just means trust in the provision of God, right? And And the provision of God is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Right, and obedience to him as well. Yes. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So again, they're, they're out unless they believe mm-hmm. and they have faith mm-hmm. and their obedience to God. Because by rejecting the Son, you necessarily reject the Father. That's what Christ says. Yeah. If you reject me, you reject the one who sent me. So I, I don't think this precedent, based on this text, to say that the, the, those uh, who are not Messianic Jews will be saved. Yeah, but, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean like the whole point of one of Paul's main points to to um, combat the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians infighting is to say that there's actually no difference between you. You are all a part of the, the vine of God. That's right. You are branches on the vine of God and the Gentiles, which used to be wild, have, have now been grafted in and they are all, you are all now sons of Abraham. You right. are all now and sons of the promise. That grafting in is what's important there. You're not grafted into all Israel. You're yeah. grafted into faithful Israel. Yes. As you're grafted so, into the faithful. So when That's Paul says, yeah, right. so when Paul says all Israel, he means True Israel. True Israel, because not all Israel belongs to Israel. Yes. Yes. Because it's not. It's it's not if you are descendant of Abraham. It is if you are fit. If you have faith in God That's and right. are living for God. That's right. It's not about right? the flesh. Right? Yes. It's about the spirit. So that's important. That's really important. So there we have here. It's about faith. It's not about heredity. Right. Um, and to to kind of cap these things off, Romans eleven verse thirty-two. Mm-hmm. Um, for God has consigned all to disobedience. That he may, may have mercy on all. Mm-hmm. So everyone's consigned to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So that includes everyone. Yeah. So all Jews may be saved, hopefully. Right? That's 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 our that's everyone's desire is for everyone to be saved. I think that's the whole point. But there'll be some who reject him. And obviously, Paul's not advocating universalism here, because he's already saying some are being cut off. Yeah. So um I think that pretty much answers the question. Well, and I think also I just want to I just want to bring our attention because Paul is tying a theme back in that he started in Romans chapter nine, just as an interest uh, in case you've missed it. When we hit verse twenty five of Romans chapter eleven, right. lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Him referring to a partial hardening. He's talked about a hardening before, just a couple chapters earlier. He talks about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Romans chapter 9. And of the people who suppressed the truth. Their hearts were hardened and darkened. Yes. Yes. And and, um, what was the result of Pharaoh's hardening of heart? Why? Why did the scriptures say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? It was to show everyone else specifically the Egyptians, but definitely also the Israelites, but in the Old Testament, it specifically talks about the Egyptians 
realizing that God is real, realizing that God is powerful, which is a very interesting thing. So Paul's tapping in on this truth that God sometimes hardens, or in this case, partially hardens, so that there can be a witness of his truth to people who are perishing, which fits very nicely here because the Gentiles were perishing. And now this, this through Jesus Christ and through his rejection by the Jews, through his crucifixion, right? right, We, the salvation was open to the Gentiles. So this witness to the Gentiles. So that's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that answers it. And I think we can move on to the big question. Let's do it. All right. So let me read it again. This pertains to Romans 13, really. It's from Deborah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I have a question and was hoping to for some clarity in regards to obeying the government. Do we do that unless it goes against scripture? Or do we obey and love even in persecution? Is battling for Canada or the nation in prayer a good thing? Is protesting quietly? Thanks so much. I desire to walk in obedience to the word and to God and his word. Amen to that. We all are aiming for that. That's kind of why we're doing this. So that is kind of, that is why we're doing it. All right. Anyways, so let's start off with uh, the first one. I think the last questions are pretty easy to, to engage too. Uh, is battling for Canada and, and the nation in prayer a good thing? Always. Always. Absolutely. It's our first line of defense, right? When we look at Ephesians chapter six, where Paul talks about we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but, but against spiritual principalities and authorities. Um, when you read Ephesians chapter six, which comes right before the armor of God, we, if it's a spiritual battle, we fight it by spiritual means. Um, so that actually has to be our priority is the, is the prayer portion of that. So right. absolutely. Yes. Um, I think that part's easy to say yes to. Everything else we're going to has a little bit more nuanced answers to it, I believe. And, and also think about, think about protesting quietly. That's the way you live your life as well, right? So we, we live our lives in the truth of God, following his absolute morality. And, and sometimes that becomes a protest of the government that you're, that you're living in because we prioritize God over anything else. If Christ can teach in John 14 that we prioritize him, in his way, above our own family, then obviously we are going to prioritize him and his ways above our government structures. Right. Okay, so yes, there is a morality structure of God, the objective truth that we follow with our lives and the decisions that we make with our life. What's that famous quote by Athanasius? So like, if the world is against the truth, then I'm against the world. Yes. In a sense, by thinking in that way, you are protesting evil. Mm-hmm. Right. So by nature, by by living your life for God and loving God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and doing the right thing, living in persecution and suffering, you are protesting <laughs> the world. OK. Yeah. In, in, a, in, a, in a quiet way. Uh, you don't have to be out there with a sign necessarily doing it like you are protesting in a way. Uh, so I would say that much is there. Definitely. Okay. okay. Romans 13. I feel like we should just read it. I feel like we should just read it to really kind of up the stakes in case you haven't read the it. The whole this chapter week. or just uh, no. up, to four, up to seven or up to 14? I would say seven. Okay. Do you want to read or me? I can read it. Do. Go. Romans 13, one to seven. Let's do it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is on authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If this doesn't go against <laughs> our current culture, I don't know what else does because we're because we we tend to think like you have to deserve our respect. Right. You have to earn our honor. Not so right. in the ancient world. They they were born into structures authority structures that already existed. So what what were you gonna do with them? Now, I think we do need to put this in its cultural context. We use both the Bible and both what we know of history to do this. Okay, right. so we know from the Bible and from history that at the point that Paul, and I already referred to this, at the point that Paul is writing Romans, about 10 years earlier, Jews and Christian Jews have been expelled from Rome. So the situation there is tense when it comes to the political yes. the political relationship that Jews and Christians have with the governing authority is really tense. And Paul has a reason to be worried about this in Romans chapter 13, because history tells us again, what happens in about 10 to 15 years after Paul writes Romans is a massive war starts at the heart of Judaism and Christianity the Roman province of Judea that ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish people get scattered into the diaspora in AD 70, right? It starts in AD 66, ends in around AD 70. It keeps going a little bit, but yeah. it was destroyed. The, the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed in AD 70. So Paul has reason to be concerned here in the political structures of his day. Now, what do we know from history? We know that Jews and and Definitely Christians, because at the beginning, Christians were seen as a small subsect of Judaism. And so for a time, they kind of enjoyed the political tolerance that Judaism had already been afforded when Judea had been taken over by Rome. We know that at best, Jews and Christians were seen as subversive to Rome because they rejected all of the, the, they rejected emperor worship, which was seen as a cohesive glue that held the, the peace of Rome together. And they rejected other gods, which again went against the functioning of the empire. So at best, they were seen as subversive and at worst, they were seen as treasonous. So they already had a very tenuous relationship with the political structures of Rome. So I think what we can deduce from all of these things, from the evidence that we see in the Bible and the evidence that we see in history, that Paul is really concerned with Christian witness, that he doesn't want to make politics the issue here. He wants to make the gospel the issue here. So we see this idea that that Christians need to subject themselves to the governing authority because they need to be able to speak the gospel. 
Now, Paul ties in a Jewish teaching that that there's evidence in the first century that Jews just believed, they believed based on the Old Testament, that, it, that in God's sovereignty, the authority structures that were there were chosen by God. Now, that doesn't mean that the authority structures are righteous. They have an opportunity to be righteous, and they may be evil. Like Cyrus, basically. Yeah. And like Paul's writing Romans, probably when Nero has just come into the emperorship, and Nero at first did okay, and then massive, probably because of his tutor, but then massive uh, flip switch was flipped, and he kind of goes wild when you look at the historical records of him, right? <laughs> yeah. He just kind of goes off the it's deep end. Word. word. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, but God's God's authority in choosing Nero to be the emperor doesn't rest on Nero's righteousness or evil. He has an opportunity to be righteous and mm -hmm. he may choose not to, which Paul learns, uh, Paul suffers, right? He is the one who gets the sword of Nero and not for righteous righteousness sake. So I think what we see here in Romans chapter 13, again, I, and I said this, but just to reiterate, is Paul's concern for the Christian witness to other Romans. Yes. Don't let them, you know, he, he talks in Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Right. Be exemplary. Right. And I think that's a similar thing that we see here in Romans 13. Don't, look, don't let people look down on you because of how you treat the government, but rather subject yourself to these authorities. Take away that suspicion that you're subversive, that you're treasonous and live your life for Jesus Christ. Yes. What do you think? No, I think I think that's a good predicate, and even just to just like, I think it's difficult to always. Her question in regards to obeying the government: do, What do we do? Uh, should we do that unless it goes against scripture? It's like, well, even here we're dealing with a monarchy, an emperor, versus a democracy, which we have. Yeah, it's a radically different system. Yeah, right. Uh, where it's like the people actually have a say in what can what what rules can pass and stuff like that. Um, having said that, once something becomes law, you kind of have to obey it, unless of course, of course, it goes against worshiping someone who's not God, right? Yeah. So when it comes down to the fundamental things, you can't like, oh, I'll, I'll just worship, you know, Nero. I'll just worship Justin Trudeau or Biden because that's what they want me to do. Okay, whatever. It, it's not about that. Um, it, it, of, course, of course, you don't do that as a Christian. Um, so th there are thresholds where you, you don't listen. However, right before this whole thing where he talks about government, Paul is talking about exactly what you're saying, what it means to be a true Christian, the marks of it, right? He goes, and he says here, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? And then he says, and in fact, do good to all people, even your enemy, feed him when he's hungry, stuff like that, because you'll reap coals on his head. So it's all about being good, 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 only doing good things to overcome evil. Mm -hmm. Right? Bless those who persecute you. And don't curse them. Like all these things. So it's it's a complete flip where it's like, oh, the government's so evil, I want to destroy it. It's like, okay, well, hold on. No, do what's good to overcome evil. And that's how you win. And and that's literally what predicates this whole discussion here with Paul talking about governing authorities. Do you have anything you want to say? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, like with the, um, we talked about it a little bit before where um, Deborah goes, in regards to obeying the government, do we do that unless it goes against scripture? Yes, as much as is possible, right? And, and I, and I, I yes. likened it back to, um, Luke chapter 14, where Jesus gives us this priority structure of he's prioritized even, even over like, um, 
the family structure. And that's important because in the Jewish world of the first century, the they were living in a patriarchal society. So the, the, the father of the family, the oldest male relative, he got to decide a, a lot of decisions for you. So if you, as a lesser member of that household, s- stepped outside of that authority to follow Christ, uh, you would be seen as bringing shame and dishonor to your family. You were, you were, you were expected to bow to the authority of your father or your grandfather or your uncle or whoever it was. But Jesus is saying, no, prioritize me over that. So we see that principle from Luke chapter 14, excuse me, but we also see it from Acts chapter four, right? Where uh, the apostles are preaching and the religious authorities call, they're preaching the temple complex and, and the religious authorities tell the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and stop teaching. And in Acts 4, verse 16 to 20, they respond like this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So in other words, Peter and John were going to respect the judgment of the religious leaders. They were going to allow themselves to be judged for doing what God had told them to do. So they were both allowing themselves to be arrested yeah. if, if, if necessary. They were, they were bowing themselves to the authority of those over them, but they were not going to stop preaching. So I think that is an attitude that we need to really consider. Yes, for sure. So, right, and with the question of do we do it, do that unless it goes against scripture? It's obviously yes, but we also have to remember that some people have weird interpretations of scripture, and so we just have to be clear that it is an an accurate understanding of scripture, an mm-hmm. accurate expositing of the scriptures, not just you know, hey, I read this, oh, obey all government authorities, you know, just it has to be in complete context with what the scripture is saying. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that's what it assumes, but I have to say that out loud. I think the second part of this question is good. Or do we obey and love even in persecution? Um, yes. Of course. Yes. That's, that's literally yes. The, everything Paul does and, and says. Absolutely. Uh, there's no question about it. And obviously, like the true, true obedience, the true love, of course. Uh, there's a new wave of love happening today, of course, that's radically different from the biblical version of love. And um, the, the godly version of love, not just the biblical, the, what, what it means to be uh, truly loving in, in Christ's name. Um, that is being tweaked. So people be like, if you don't do this, then you don't love me. And some people are, are hurling unfair burdens on people. They're like, oh, if you don't do this, then you don't love me kind of thing. Like, I don't want to say what particularly, um, but you could probably think of examples. Definitely. And the difficulty with that is when people throw unfair burdens on you, you have to look at them being like, okay, I'm doing this for you because of your inability, but it is an unfair burden. But you have to be able to recognize when something's unfair. And I think of what it's loving is, is in telling people when something is unfair, in my opinion. Yeah. Anyways. And and just to just to her point there, do we obey and love even in persecution? Absolutely. That made me think of James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. And I'm just going to read it for you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he's just pointing back to the suffering and the struggle that earlier, earlier, followers of God experienced and we get to see the end of their story where God has mercy and God has compassion and God has a plan so we can rest in that. So yes, we still love and remain steadfast in persecution. I just, it, remind, it reminded me of James 5, so I just yeah. wanted to bring that up. No, that's great. <laughs> I, once again, this has become like the, since COVID, this has become like the most controversial passage as of recent. As of late. Sure, because, because we yeah. are used to nothing. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but there's no reason to engage that because there's no questions about it. So Agreed. I think I think that we've done a good job and we're I think way we over look time. At, we, we look at the general, oh my goodness, we really are. I just looked at the clock. There's a yeah. clock underneath there. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. But yes, we, we, we we're bringing out general principles from yes. the scripture here and then, and then how to specifically apply it. That's a different show. All right, but I would really love if you're still here, I'd really love to hear your thoughts uh, and opinions down below on these scriptures and these questions that we've talked about today. Please don't forget to subscribe. Uh, that way you don't miss in any of the any of our uh, future videos that we um, you know push produce. out, produce. Thank you. I was like, what's the <laughs> word? Starts with P produce. Yeah. Thank you. No Thank problem. you, Malik. All right, guys, until next week, happy reading and studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.